there are some 7 billion people in the world. There is basically for all intents and purposes, infinity money. There's just like, you couldn't possibly get your arms around all the money in the world. Okay. So there are people in the world. There are sufficient people in the world. If you've done your targeting of problem and persona correctly to buy what you've built, there just are. And so you need to understand who they are and target them with laser-like precision and go collect them all. It's like Pokemon, go collect them all rather than just taking what you bump into and hoping that the next deal will come and the next deal will come. And so the first way you justify saying no is by recognizing the universe's abundance and going and finding your people instead of just desperately trying to grab at any deal that's happening in front of you. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. I'm Yaniv, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I've worked at Google and a number of scale-ups, and I'm now co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. Hey, and I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in Silicon Valley. I'm now helping a small handful of companies avoid landmines and dead ends and just fast forward to the best high growth outcomes as quickly as possible. And our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley style disruption at scale. In this episode, we're going to discuss the often misunderstood concept of product, specifically what is the difference between product and tech? Picking a persona and a problem? What does self-serve mean? Why productization requires focus? How and why to say no to customers? And putting the right people in charge. Oh, that's a lot of great stuff in there. So let's jump in. But just before we do that, we actually have a bit of a milestone. The Startup Podcast turns 10 today. 10 episodes, that is. And I read somewhere recently that only 10 to 20% of all podcasts ever reach the 10th episode. So we're already fairly mature in the podcast space. It's been really exciting. And we just wanted to thank all of you, our listeners, for your support. We've seen steady growth in listenership and really great feedback. And that's extremely motivating for us to keep going. So thanks so much. And here's to many more episodes, Chris. It really is motivating. You know, we tend to take... Uh, very little time on this show to talk about personal stuff and, you know, how's how's your life and how's your dog? Because we know that our audience's time is very precious, but it is absolutely worth taking a moment to thank the audience for tuning in. And as you said, the numbers are really growing. Also, the one-on-one feedback where people are reaching out to us each individually and sending their thanks and actually providing very thoughtful feedback that shows the the specific intentionality that we're putting into the show is is being received and and being well received so uh, i'm glad it's resonating thank you all for listening and for your feedback to us personally and in the comments my dog's doing really well thanks for asking my dog is doing really well as well so it's all fantastic but that is the end of our personal banter (laughs) let's get to the real high quality high density content for you guys Okay, cool. So I'm looking at our run sheet and you're saying product versus tech and features. What's the difference? I'm keen to understand what you mean by that, Chris. So let's jump into that. So this whole episode is about clarifying what product actually is, because I often find in markets outside of Silicon Valley, there's really a little bit of confusion about the difference between product and technology and specifically 
how to get from one to the other. So the way I frame this is technology is really some code written by an engineer to make the computer do some stuff, whether it's generate a web page or a mobile app or a Windows app, but it's an engineer tinkering away on some code. And if you press the button, the, the light goes green or some outcome occurs. And that's tech. To use perhaps another familiar example, imagine Elon Musk and his team building an electric motor and having that motor be maybe very high efficiency, high torque, that's really great technology. But product is everything else. Product is taking that code that does some stuff under probably pretty good or ideal conditions and adding some additional code to gracefully handle failures, exceptions, unexpected situations. It's an engineering team who's keeping an eye out for outages or problems. It's an user experience that's beautiful and intuitive and effective. It's an ability for customers to onboard themselves and get to value quickly. It's systems that can handle growing numbers of interactions. It's the team monitoring for bottlenecks in the user experience and uncorking those bottlenecks. It's sales and marketing and operations that support users interacting with that product. It's every feature and capability documented and marketed to a target customer, a target audience. And it's the ability for that product to be sold as is. To continue with the Tesla example, it's the difference between Elon Musk having built an electric motor or even a prototype vehicle and building a high production factory with retail outlets, support parts, a user manual, a website configurator, a supply chain. It's delivering the car at scale. And if you've heard Elon Musk speak recently, he's actually gone to great lengths to make this point because there's a lot of upstart EV companies coming up. And he says, actually, making the factory is a hundred times harder than making the prototype. And actually, the product is the factory. It's the ability to produce and sell these cars at scale. It's whatever makes it useful, delightful, and ultimately retentive to end users. In previous episodes, we've talked about the fact that ultimately the job of a tech startup or any business really is to identify a problem and then to produce and distribute at scale a solution to that problem that people want to use. And in a sense, the solution to the problem and the distribution of it, well, that's the product. And you're right, we call these things tech startups in the industry. And it is quite likely that the name tech startup means that people think it's about tech. Apart from that very specific case of, of what's called deep tech, where maybe you are building a next generation electric motor and that's your, your startup. That's not what most of them are. All you're doing here is using tech as a way to build a scalable solution to your problem. And as you know, I'm from an engineering background. I've led engineering teams. And one of the most important things to explain to engineers, especially, is that their job isn't to write code. Their job is to manifest the solution to the problem in software. And so they need to be thinking about the problem and the solution and the product if they're going to write code that makes a difference to the user's life. That's absolutely right. And even in that example you talked about of if you're in it to build the electric engine, even that technology needs to be productized. If your electric engine is a series of technical breakthroughs. If that electric engine is not packaged with a name, with a spec sheet, with some support documentation, with spare parts, with a price sheet, with a supply chain, 
that electric engine is not a product. It's a service, right? It's a prototype. It's a technology. And so even if you are building what you might think of as ostensibly as something very technical, very engineering heavy, it still needs to be productized in some way. We've talked about this in previous episodes, the difference between a technology-backed services company, where you have a bunch of technology laying around the back office that you stitch together and custom build for a customer each time, versus a product company where the technology has been coalesced, branded, documented, supported, priced, marketed, and sold. So that's our definition. So let's try to get practical here. How do you make sure that what you are doing is in fact building a product and not just accidentally putting together a bunch of tech? The very first step is to get very clear about the problem and persona that you're solving for. This is way harder than it sounds because oftentimes different problems and different customer personas and use cases can appear very similar. And so your instinct is often to conflate, confuse, or target multiple of these at the same time. But the example that I often like to give is, imagine if you want to leave the house and you need to get ready. In order to do that, you need to prioritize your backlog of tasks or think about it like prioritizing your product roadmap. You would actually prioritize things very differently depending on the reason for your departure from home. So let's imagine you have a randomly organized backlog of things like get dressed, wash your hair, go to the venue, put makeup on and get in the car. That's just a random list, right? Now, if you're going to go pick up an urgent package from the post office, well, you might get dressed first, then get in the car, then go to the venue and then wash your hair and put on makeup is optional or eliminated from the list. But if your goal for leaving the house is to go to a fancy dress ball, then the first thing you got to do is wash your hair, then get dressed, then put on makeup, then get in the car, then go to the venue, right? So go to the venue moves from third place to fifth place. Wash your hair moves from being eliminated to being the first task. Mm. And so you can see those two tasks seem kind of similar, right? You're, you're leaving the house, <laughs> but actually the reason for leaving the house radically reshuffles the deck. And so the first, first thing you've got to do is understand what specifically, very specifically is the problem you're solving for who specifically and in what cases and in which market. And the narrower you get, the clearer your prioritization trade-offs become and the clearer your features and your design decisions and your vocabulary and every aspect of the product choices become as you're building out, not just the tech, but the branding, the support, the supply chain, everything. One mistake that I see people make with this stuff is they go, oh, okay, we've got a tech business and we know the persona, we know the customer segment that we want to target. And the thing is, persona is not a thing that you impose on the world. The world has this actually very complex set of personas or market segments that exists out there. And it is your job to discover those segments and the boundaries around those segments and then the right ones to target. And like with many things in product, I find that's a bit of an iterative process. If you come up front and say, we know who our market is, like with everything else in startups, you're probably wrong. So there's this back and forth between developing the product and discovering who the product is for, it's not a linear process. And so I find that really fascinating and it's nearly a quite valuable piece of IP for a company or a moat, I guess you could call it, that doesn't get talked about very often when you have 
genuine understanding of a large enough group of people who have the same problem and need a similar solution to that problem. It's definitely an iterative process. Everything in startups is an iterative process. Nothing we're discussing here or really on any episode is linear where you set it and forget it. But what is definitely something you have to be careful about is to not allow it to be a pure feedback loop where you're thrashing. Let's talk about the anti-pattern. What often ends up happening is, especially in, in a B2B business, you have a sales team or initially the founder is out there talking to potential customers and they end up selling to anyone who'll buy, <laughs> frankly, mm. and, you know, just desperate to bring in those accounts, those logos, that revenue. And there will be this tendency to sell to multiple different kinds of customers and different kinds of buyer personas. And the asks will start to fragment. That might be useful to do in the early days to try to understand where the problems are and where you might begin and where do you want to zero in to your point, Yanev, do you want to iterate and learn? But there is a limit. There is a diminishing return. There is actually a, a potential for catastrophe if you continue to allow that top of the funnel to be too wide for too long. It's funny. It's a slightly off color, but I used to work at a place where one of the, the folks making deals, they, they call that person the sex addict. And the reason for that is they never saw a deal they didn't want to bring home, right? <laughs> it's, it's a terrible pathology because what you're saying there is that there's a lack of discipline where instead of making sure that you understand what the persona is, you are bringing home all sorts of different customers. If your customers don't have the same problem and don't have the persona, that means that they will be satisfied by the same or very similar solution, then you're not building something scalable. So when I talk about being iterative, I'm very into this view of startups as learning engines. So when you bring in customers and you start to see what resonates with them, it's far more than just saying, oh, okay, these people, you know, we managed to close the sale with them. It's about starting to understand what customers have in common and using that feedback loop to shape both your product and your persona. So it's a co-evolution, but you need to go to first principles. So you're doing discovery of the market. That means that as you bring in customers, you're starting to see what works, what doesn't, which sales are easy to close, which ones are not easy to close, where you have similar features or similar workflows where you can insert yourself. But yes, simply saying, oh, you know, we open up, up our top of funnel and as long as we close deals, then we're happy. Uh, of course, you're right. You, that's a road to major pain. And there's another sort of saying I like which speaks to this and especially applies to B2B startups, which is they usually die of indigestion and not starvation. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's very interesting because this also touches on the last episode where we talked about B2B and B2C. We've talked about choosing your problem and your persona. I guess I should have also said you need to pick your business model. Often the, the mistake I find here is that people will be happy to choose a B2B business model. You know, we'll build you a, the CRM or the backend tool that operates your business. And then another customer will say, well, no, I need you to also build some front end pieces here. So there's a B2B to C piece. And someone else will say, well, actually we want just some consumer marketplace or worse, the other way around, you're building some consumer tool, but you'll find a customer or a partner willing to partner with you, but only if you white label it. And so we should have said, really, you need to pick your problem, your persona, and your business model. And you need to be very, very focused on that. And you need to remember that your business model is not super serving the needs of a customer. 
it is building a productized solution for scale. And to some degree, we're skipping ahead here. So I, I'll ask the audience to bear with us a little bit because I can hear some of the objections already, which is why in the world would you turn down a deal? What if there's a lot of money on the table? All this kind of stuff. And so let us walk through this a little bit further. And I think some of it will come into to more focus. Let's maybe remind the audience, the goal of a startup is really about scale. And scale is not about adding one or two or five or 10 customers at a time. It's about trying to reach an inflection point where your growth curve looks like a hockey stick. It has a bend in it and it's going sharply up and to the right. That's the goal. The goal is not to close any particular deal that's in front of you. And that's something that I think gets very quickly lost when you're in the day-to-day -day weeds and operational roller coaster of running a startup. So one of the things to keep in mind is you're trying to get to that inflection point, that hockey stick curve. And so that's part of the reason that we're talking here about saying no to certain customers or picking the certain customers you want to say yes to. Now, in order to achieve that growth, that curve, you need to build products of the kind we've just described with documentation and support and supply chain and so on. And the products as a result start to become self-serve. So self-serve, I think is pretty self-explanatory, but let's just be very clear about it. It's the idea that a user or a business or even better individuals within a business can pick up that product, become curious, learn how to use it and succeed with it without having to speak to a support team or a sales team. Perhaps they've spoken to a sales team because you have some very, very good reason to gate it behind a sales process, although we can debate and discuss that in other episodes. But once they're convinced, perhaps, they should be able to use the product with minimal intervention from human beings. That requires a level of polish and sophistication from your product that is quite difficult to achieve. Everything I've described at the beginning of this episode about what a product is and understanding that, that all of that needs to be fully self-serve and require minimal human intervention, that's really hard to do. And it's really, really costly to do. And it takes an enormous amount of patience and thoughtfulness and time and focus. I think the key word, probably, if you take away one word from this entire episode is focus. So if you are saying yes to the wrong customers, and then very quickly, you'll start saying yes to the wrong feature requests and the wrong contractual obligations and the wrong prioritizations, you are by definition undermining focus. And that's how you start to diffuse your effort into the product, the level of polish you can achieve, the level of scalability you can achieve. The next part of this episode will really be about how in the world can you possibly say no to thousands or tens of thousands or millions of dollars of revenue that are being placed in front of you as a very young, very hungry startup. Look, I mostly, but don't completely agree with what you said there in terms of self-service. I think self-service is a good aspiration for a lot of types of products, but when you talk about enterprise products, quite often there does need to be a level of bespoke work of implementation, integration work, that is just an inevitable part of the business. And I mentioned this because I, I think it's actually important to abstract a level from what you're saying about why self-serve in the first place, why is that important? And it goes all the way back to episode one, as things often do, startups are about scale 
and scale means having very high margins and low marginal costs, right? You can invest a lot of money in building your core product, but then the cost of an incremental customer relative to the amount of revenue they bring in has to be really low. And that allows you to grow very quickly. Now with enterprise customers, sometimes these are multi-million dollar deals. So high margin might mean it only costs you a couple of hundred thousand dollars to onboard a $5 million customer. And that's fine when you're at a level of complexity that requires that. But it's when those margins start dropping that you stop being that sort of high growth startup model. So self-service wherever possible is obviously the lowest marginal cost. And if you have a business model that doesn't bring in multi-million dollar deals, then probably self-serve is the only way to get that marginal cost down low enough, but it is not the only way to get those margins. Let's talk about what typically happens. So you're right, Yanev, if you are Salesforce or IBM and you have an incredibly sophisticated product that needs to get deeply enmeshed in some large enterprises workflow, then there's always going to be a services component. But let's talk about reality. Reality is you're one or two or three people getting started, or maybe if you've raised a series A, you're 10 or 20 or 30 people. You should be building a product that does not require all that guff. You should be building something that is relatively discreet, relatively simple and easy to understand, and relatively easy to integrate with the key third-party tools that typically exist in the ecosystem around that product with connectors and plugins and pre-made integrations and so on. And you should probably, if it's that complicated a product, have a really clear API and API documentation. And let's say in the worst case scenario, you've built something very complicated and sophisticated for a very specific problem set, which I don't know why you should think about developing a, an ecosystem of third party agencies who know how to implement your stuff. The reason I hesitate on what you're saying is because it kind of gives permission to a lot of companies that are acting as technology backed services companies to say, oh yeah, we're kind of doing this sort of right. I would say that it is an absolute minority of startups that should require that level of complication and sophistication to deploy. You, you really, really want to bias towards a product that is self-serve and self-configurable with clean and clear boundaries and APIs for all the rest. Now, if you absolutely need a services business, then build a parallel service business that sits on top of your API or on top of your configuration, but your core team should not be spending a lot of time custom baking or building anything for customers the majority of the time. I was just actually recently involved in a conversation with one of the companies that I've invested in about servicing existing customers versus expanding out to new customers. And I think that the takeaway from that conversation, which is applicable here is if you are doing custom work and it can be services work or feature work, actually, it doesn't make that much of a difference in this context for a specific customer, because of they have that need, you should only be doing that if that improves your ability to scale. If you're like, oh, okay, by doing this, I can get more customers or reduce the marginal cost of onboarding a new customer, then it's worth doing that work. The difference between services work and product work, it's ultimately in whether it helps you scale. It can look exactly the same. The question is, are you building something or doing something that will help you with many, many customers, or are you doing something that will just help this one customer? 
So in the context of that, often dealing with a few of these enterprise businesses, they're happy to do a lot of very bespoke work to get those first few logos. And that's okay. As long as what they're doing is effectively learning how to make this more self-serve. And so it's a mountain that they're climbing to get towards self-serve rather than starting self-serve. I think it's just a different go-to-market motion when you're building complex software for enterprises, as opposed to things that people can just pick up and start using. So I actually really like that framing, which is you can take in work from a customer request if it helps you scale. I think that's really good because what tends to happen is people will accept a customer request or even a contractual obligation whereby they think that the ask is quote unquote on strategy or it's on the roadmap anyway. And what they're doing is they're admitting that work because it opens up an adjacency or it makes the product they believe accessible to a new kind of customer, a new kind of problem, a new kind of market, as opposed to making the product easier for existing customers to adopt the next time. And as I said, the argument, the rationale tends to be, well, this was on the roadmap anyway. And what I've said to startups that I've worked with is the question is not, is it on strategy or is it on the roadmap anyway? And you're just bringing it forward. The question is, is it on the roadmap in the next three months? It's not enough for a customer to ask for it, for, for you to prioritize it on the roadmap. You have to, and this is, we're going to talk soon about putting the right people in charge and what is product management. The product management team needs to triangulate a roadmap based on user behavior, market trends, the target problem and persona, the target business model, data from sales and support and customer requests that are in the pipeline and so on. And they need to combine all of that data in order to triangulate a roadmap for the next three to six months. It is insufficient that one customer account, I don't care really how big they are and some others will be more sensitive or less sensitive to that. I don't really care how big they are. It should not move an item from six to 12 months on down your roadmap to within the next two or three months. That is not a good enough reason. And I think what you said, Yanev, is an even better rule of thumb, which is, does this ask make the product more self-serve, more self-adopt, more polished? and easier to scale, or is it unlocking an adjacency, a new problem set, a new customer type, and you have not actually strategically decided you want to move into that space yet? Because this stuff is really complicated and really costly to build and maintain well. Again, if you go all the way back to our definition of product, it's really easy to add a checkbox to the product. It's really easy to add some tech, add quote unquote, a feature. It's actually really, really hard to extend the product, to think through all the implications of what that checkbox means, not just for that one user, but for all the use cases, all of the user roles, all the marketing, the support, the documentation, that one checkbox could take days, weeks, or months to build properly and to maintain over time. And so each product iteration needs to be very, very carefully considered. All right. So good life advice and also good advice in business in this context is getting good at saying no. And that really comes down to a few things. The first is knowing when to say no, and then knowing how to say no. So let's start with the first of those. 
Saying no can be difficult for a variety of reasons. And especially when there is a check attached and people are offering you money, that how exciting is that you're a new startup and people are offering you money for stuff. When is it the right thing to do to say no, no, thank you. And that's kind of what we've been touching on in the last little bit, right? It's when the feature they're asking for is already on your near term roadmap in the next two or three months, it's already you know, placed on the roadmap, even perhaps scoped, designed, and it's coming, then that's a good reason to say yes, of course. If it's making the product easier to adopt for the next hundred customers, not easier to justify adopting, right? Not like we need this feature in order to justify adopting, but easier for them to onboard and learn and invite other users and so on. That's a good reason to say yes. If obviously this in the sweet spot of the problem and persona that you are building for, and that's the customer in the pipeline, that's a good reason to say yes to that customer. Hopefully they have no asks to say yes, but bad reasons to say yes are some of the things we've also already touched on. A big check. Worse than a big check, Yanev, which I've seen a lot, is where the company will say, oh, that's a big distraction for us, but if you fund the development, (laughs) then we'll say yes. That's like classic, tech-backed services business thinking, right? That's agency thinking. It's like, that's fantastic. They're funding the feature. We weren't going to do it or we weren't going to do it right now. It's free. It's free money. (laughs) It's like the most expensive money you can possibly get because you're buying yourself a headache. You're buying yourself a thorn in your side and a maintenance overhead and distracting your engineering and product resources. Oh my God. Do not, do not ask for money to justify building some crap that you did not want to build. That is not your business model. Your business model is not to take money to build features. You're not an IT department. You're not a technology-backed services company. You're not an agency. You're a product-led tech startup. If you're listening to this podcast, that's your goal. And so please, please, please do not take money to build a feature Do not take a customer account if they're in the wrong problem or persona or business model or or roadmap timing for your thing. So that's when you you say no. I'll add one last point here. You're not necessarily saying no forever. You're not saying I'm never going to speak to you again. You're really saying not now. You will come back and pick that customer up when and if your product grows organically and properly in order to meet their needs. But if you say yes at the wrong time, the product will not grow and the business will not grow to survive that long. And this is probably maybe one of the main reasons if we rotate a little bit slightly to the next topic here on how to justify saying no. And the first is just to recognize that you will come back around later and pick that opportunity up. There are some 7 billion people in the world. There is basically for all intents and purposes, infinity money. There's just like, you couldn't possibly get your arms around all the money in the world. Okay. So there are people in the world. There are sufficient people in the world. If you've done your targeting of problem and persona correctly to buy what you've built, there just are. And so you need to understand who they are and target them with laser-like precision and go collect them all. It's like Pokemon, go collect them all rather than just taking what you bump into and hoping that the next deal will come and the next deal will come. And so the first way you justify saying no is by recognizing the universe's abundance 
and going and finding your people instead of just desperately trying to grab at any deal that's happening in front of you? So I think there are a couple of things I'd like to zoom into there. So first of all, I, I think it's worth dividing up these sorts of requests between existing customers and prospective new customers, because they are two different flavors of the same badness. So existing customers, what I often see is people are like, these are our best customers. These are our first customers. It's important to keep them happy and give them the love. And in a sense, obviously you want to maintain open communications, respect them and their needs. But remember this, they're your best customers because your current core product offering met their needs. And of course, they're always going to want more and you shouldn't be an asshole. But the truth is most of them are going to be willing to wait because they've already found your solution to be the best solution on the market for their problem. So it's very tempting that when an existing customer says jump, that you jump. But actually, a lot of the time, the work that they're requesting is optional because the truth is they're already a customer. So you don't, you don't need to win them. You want to provide them with excellent customer service, but the parameters of that initial decision for them to go with you wasn't based on features you hadn't built yet. It was based on the features that you had built. So congratulations, they're your customer. Don't take them for granted, but understand that they need you just as much as you need them. So the power balance there is maybe not what it appears to be to you. Customers love to hang renewal over your head. Like we're not going to renew unless you do this, this, and this, and you need to keep us happy. And it's crazy making, right? You feel this life or death existential struggle to renew the customer and they, they add contractual obligations for each renewal. You need to recognize. This is a very costly, very dangerous road. And I've actually bumped into a lot of startups, Yanev, where they're in this situation where they've been acting as a sales led organization. They've said yes to a lot of customers. The customer is very familiar with their behavior pattern of, we ask for something, you give it to us. And I, I've helped them navigate the rotation from being sales led and renewal led to product led. And one of the first things I encourage them to do is to develop a product strategy and a strong opinion about their problems, their personas and what have you, and then actually go back to those customers and pitch them, explain to them, re-explain to them what your business is, what your problem is that you solve, what the product is, and also explain to them exactly what we here are explaining to the audience, which is you don't want us to jump from request to request. You don't want us to say yes to everything you're asking, because if we do that for you, we will be undermining the health and success of our business, and we will be a poor vendor to you over the long term. And so what you want us to do, Mr. Customer, Mrs. Customer, is to build a disciplined product strategy so that we're building the best of breed world-class product and business so that we will survive in the long term and give you a really high quality set of features for the things we actually do. And so you actually need to move them from the other side of the table as adversaries in a renewal to on the same side of the table as investors in your long-term success. Yeah. And the extreme version of that, of course, is you may sometimes lose a renewal or even need to fire a customer, right? So it's one thing to say no passively. Another one is to say, you know what, you are not a fit for us, if you cannot reach terms, it is better to let go of 
effectively a toxic customer who's taking you further away from your ambition than bend over backwards to keep them. So when you're in renewal conversations, negotiating, you know, there's an art to it, but ultimately it's about leverage, right? The best negotiating position to be in is always to be genuinely willing to walk away. And so when you're doing this, you should always be genuinely willing to walk away if having this customer does not serve your long-term interests. And of course there's budgetary constraints to that, but that's why it's important not to make your whole business plan dependent on one or two major customers, because that is exactly the road to becoming a services business. This gets a lot easier the faster that you get specific about that problem, that persona, and that business model, which is why we started the whole episode with that. But it's not enough to just pick that as a CEO or as a product manager and kind of like dust your hands off and say, we're done. You need to engage in a process of sales enablement. You need to work with marketing and sales to ensure that they are precisely targeting those customers, qualifying those leads. And, and only allowing customers into the pipeline that meet this qualification standard. And so oftentimes startups will say to me, well, how do we just manage this avalanche of demands? The first step is to not admit them into the business in the first place. That has to be the first step. And, and as I touched on, go target with laser-like precision the customers you want rather than stumbling on the customers who are willing to talk to you. But the next objection I often hear is, well, Chris, you know, that's really good in theory. That's a great academic principle to, to hang your hat on. But really, we, we're not big enough to say no yet. Well, once we're big enough and once we've raised a bunch of capital, we can then start saying no to customers. And I'll agree with part of that, okay? Part of that is you absolutely need to raise capital. Part of the reason and part of the best ways of justifying saying no is because you have capital to burn and to invest in your product strategy. And so you absolutely need capital. However, smart money will not invest in businesses that are acting like technology-backed services businesses. So if you are acting this way pre-capital, the capital will have a hard time, the right kind of capital will have a hard time investing in you because they will see the services revenue or they'll see the cost of customer acquisition. They'll see your margins. They'll see your general strategies for winning accounts. And they will understand that you have not built a product that is repeatable and scalable and, and high margin. So you definitely need the capital. But you don't get big enough to say no. You say no to get big enough. You get disciplined about who you are. And then you onboard tens, hundreds, thousands of customers. That's how you get big. You don't get big by saying yes to whatever walks through the door. Yeah. So the, the point you made about capital and going all the way back to the beginning, as we often do, one of the things that defines a Silicon Valley style startup is that they take external equity capital. And this is one of the many reasons. And it sort of shows that you can never be truly free. Like we, we're an interconnected world. When you're running a business, you're dependent on others. And so. As much as taking venture capital means that you have obligations to investors, what it does, on the other hand, is buy you a certain freedom from being cash flow obsessed. So this question of, oh, okay, we can't say no to this customer because we really need the money. That is a constraint that being venture funded to a certain quite large extent takes away. And so then we can say, not we need the money, but is this the right customer for our long-term needs? And so it's very worthwhile to be 
fully aware of that trade-off where, you know, either you become a bit more beholden to investors or you become more beholden to customers. And then to ask yourself in terms of alignment of incentives, sophistication, and other things, which of those two collaborations or dependencies help you reach your goals better? I've had founders say to me, well, I don't want to take capital because I don't want a boss or I don't want a board or I don't want the pressure or I don't want to be beholden to investors. And I think you frame that really well. You should not be starting a startup. And again, it's all about definition of terms here, right? There are multiple ways to run a business. There are multiple priorities you might have. But Yanev and I are talking about Silicon Valley style startups. That's a specific kind of business. And those startups are not about not having a boss. They're about making some kind of dent in the universe. They're about changing some aspect of the world. They're about building a high growth technology backed business. You are going to be beholden to someone. And if your goal is to build that kind of startup, you want to be really more aligned with investors because their incentives, to your point, Yanev, is to help you grow that really, really big business. If you're going to be beholden to the whims or needs or requirements of a customer, they would be happy for you to solve all of their IT needs because other vendors aren't and their IT department isn't and their engineers can't. And so they would be happy for you to meet all their contractual obligations all day long. And they don't really care about the scale and growth of your business. And so you absolutely, in talking about incentives and aligning with partners, I would much rather be aligned with smart investors than even the most well-meaning customer who really just wants you to solve their day-to-day -day problems so they can go home with their kids. Now, if we're not just saying yes to everything, we're not just in the short term trying to optimize for most revenue in the door, most customers booked. What are the goals that we should be setting and holding ourselves to in order to align with a long-term ambition? Yeah. So this connects all the way to episode, oh geez, I don't know, episode one, episode two, episode three, this, this connects all the way to the beginning. And, and actually looking at the listening patterns here, speaking of episode 10, people are really going back and listening to these episodes. So that's, that's a great pattern to see. And these episodes really do build on each other that we talked extensively about the right goals in some of those episodes, and hopefully that sets the right context and this reinforces that context. And so let's recap a little bit in those episodes we talked about and actually debated about a little bit why revenue is not the right leading indicator for most startups, particularly at the beginning. And it's for the reasons we're discussing here, accepting revenue at all costs, revenue that is expensive, that comes with contractual obligations, that comes with distractions, that comes with roadmap reprioritizations is not the kind of revenue you want to get which is why revenue should be second or third or fourth on your list as an early stage startup. That's why repeatable high margin growth is really the goal. So you want to set growth in terms of the amount of users on the platform, in terms of the amount of customers who've signed up, in terms of the speed at which they signed up, in terms of the percentage at which they retained, and the level of human intervention that it took to get them to sign up and to retain and, and so on. So these growth metrics are of a higher priority than revenue. And again, I'm always quick to point out revenue is not irrelevant. It's not a bad thing to have, but it can't be your first priority at all costs. Completely agree. Now we're starting to come towards the end. There's one major topic here, which is in terms of who to put in charge 
of making some of these decisions or rather how do we structure our organization and our decision-making processes so that we make those decisions correctly. And then just segue into talking a little bit more about the role of the product manager. That's an upcoming episode to dive deep on, but we can talk about it in this context. There's often there's this debate between, or actually it's not even sometimes a debate. It's sometimes an implicit decision that nobody's really thought about too much, whereby sales is taking the lead. You know, they're out there in the field, talking to customers, hearing the voice of the customers, either deliberately or unintentionally signing the business up for these contractual obligations, which is all very well-meaning activity, but it can be a distracting or even disruptive or destructive behavior in the full scope of the business. If sales is ultimately making the decisions about which customers to bring in, which obligations or requirements to accept and so on. And so sales led organizations work in certain contexts and certain business models, but in a high growth technology based startup, sales is typically not the function you want to be in the lead on these kind of decisions. On the other hand, there tends to be engineering and engineering also very well-meaning, very effective operators and executors at what they do. They're wizards. Uh, I have such a high degree of respect and, and admiration for engineers, but they tend to be down in the weeds. They tend to be down in the implementation details. They're like the soldiers fighting in the trenches every day, but they don't tend to have the, the battlefield perspective, the general perspective of which hill to take, which problem to solve in which order and so on. And so it's difficult for a business. I think, to be engineering-led. Now, there are very successful companies who claim to be engineering-led. I would say they're probably either some combination of very, very technical businesses with very, very sophisticated engineering leadership. So sophisticated, in, in, in fact, that they're essentially acting as product people. So I wouldn't have engineering in the traditional sense in that ultimate decision-making role. And then, of course, there's that third bucket, which is the magical kind of intersection of all of these things, which is the product manager. And again, Yanev, you and I have talked at length about how the product manager is not so much a leader or a boss, but really just half a step ahead. They're this intersection point between all of the functions. They're a curator. They're a kind of director of the film. And so they certainly shouldn't be bossing everyone around, but they should be developing or rather triangulating a worldview from sales, from engineering, from marketing, from business, and trying to figure out a principled roadmap of execution that meets the needs of all of those stakeholders while not necessarily over-indexing on any one of them. And just to kind of zoom in on what this means at an early stage, because I think it's really interesting at a very early stage, really, this is going to be your founder, your CEO. And you talked about sales-led businesses and product-led businesses. Early on, whether you're sales-led or product-led is going to depend on whether the CEO is thinking in more of a sales mindset or a product mindset. And, you know, once that begins, it's very difficult later on as you scale up and, you know, add sales and product professional leaders, specialists into the company, it's difficult to change from there. So. At the early stage, I think it's really incumbent on the founder CEO to think to themselves, am I going to take the sales driven cadence or a product driven one? And ultimately the activities look the same, right? Like you're still 
you know, potentially doing sales calls, you're doing customer discovery, you're doing all of this. And the difference really comes down to how do you make the decisions? How do you negotiate? And yes, are you willing to say no to customers if they don't fit into your product ambitions? So it's, it's very much a question of mindset rather than specific role, but yes, the product manager. And like I said, early on, that really is going to be the CEO has to be really thinking about that big picture that the battlefield view, I like that analogy, uh, in terms of making a decision, not just based on dollars signs, not just based on this person's a friend, not just based on we can, but what is the right thing for the long term? Or based on a runway that is uh, running out, mm. <laughs> right? I see that a lot. And I would go one step further than that, Jan Evan, say, as a CEO, it's less about a decision and more about your experience and your proclivities. If you come from a sales organization and you are a very good salesperson, it's difficult for you to even know what you don't know. And all of the things we've talked about in this episode really have come from both of us, I think, Yanev, working with founders who have this unconscious bias towards sales and not understanding what product is. And so I would say if you have not got a product background as a CEO, it is unlikely you're going to magically manifest that into reality. And so I would find a co-founder or a first hire who is an experienced product manager and a keyword being experienced and the keyword being product manager, not product owner, account manager, creative director from an agency, or even frankly, a, a legacy company. <laughs> My favorite anti-pattern is ANZ for some reason. Find someone from a product-led tech company, and I'm talking, you know, Atlassian, Canva, Google, Facebook, Uber, Amazon, or any of their ilk, and put them in charge, put them in a position of authority and encourage them to tell you no, because your instinct is probably sales guy instinct, saleswoman instinct. You're looking at that runway, you're looking at that burn rate, and you are going to want to say yes. And, and I'll go one step further again. I have been the quote unquote head of product who has been out in the field trying to sell and been the co-founder looking at the runway running out. And I have made countless mistakes where I admit stuff into the roadmap thinking, oh yeah, this was on my strategy anyway. Oh yes, I know how to generalize this so it doesn't distract the team. Oh yes, I know we can get this done cheaply and, and effectively. And the pressure you can, when you're in the room with the customer, hearing the customer's voice and people want to be polite, they want to be enthusiastic, they want to win. And you're going to find yourself blurting out the phrase, yeah, absolutely. We can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so this is why it's so important to have as early as possible, a separation of concerns, I'll say between CEO, sales, product and eng. So if you in any way feel like your product perspective is being compromised by sales, whether because of your background or because of your, the motions you're going through in the business, find a product manager. And Nick, two episodes ago, the partner at Blackbird, he almost basically said, if the founder isn't a product person, almost they're disqualified. I, I would say, I don't know if they're disqualified, but go get a product manager and, and get them to help. And then the opposite is true. If you're a product-led founder, go find a great go-to-market 
partner and think about ads and growth and sales, because the last thing you want to do is build this beautiful snowflake of a product and, and not find a way to take it to market. Yeah. Look, I think you're describing an ideal that sort of pushback I'd give a little bit here is there are literally more startups in the ecosystem than there are experienced product managers, let alone ones who are looking to join startups. And so I think it's, it's a very high bar to say, you need to have a co-founder who is an experienced product manager. And I think, you know, a lot of people listening to this show are founders and looking to get better at their practice as startup founders. And so I think the, the next best thing really is to try to inculcate that product management mindset, that product mindset into yourself, because yes, there are skills that are associated with product management, of course, but ultimately product management is a mindset. And I think that is something that somebody from a different background, uh, and some of the best product managers, by the way, started in a different background can do well at. I 100% agree. People can evolve and learn and, and grow. And, and as a founder, it is definitely, definitely ideal that you add that to your repertoire. I, I agree with that for sure. Maybe the key in that case is get a great startup advisor to help you out. So I think that's the, the sum total of what we wanted to cover today. I will give a shout out to a deck that I have made at chrissard.com slash startup scale. One of the decks there is called Becoming a High Growth Tech Startup. And it actually presents a lot of these concepts in written form with some diagrams as well. So that is a resource you might want to use. Maybe we'll include that in the show notes. That's worthwhile putting in your toolkit and, and sharing with your team. All right. So really what we talked about today is what's the difference between just the tech that you're building and the overall product that you're creating, how to make something self-serve, why it's important, how to scale your team. And most importantly, I think we spend the most time on how to deal with customer requests and learning when and how to say no to customers. So it's our 10th birthday. I'm going to do the, the usual slightly desperate plug where I ask you if you are getting value from this, I think the best birthday present you could give us is to write a review or give us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and think of one person you know who might really also benefit from listening to the Startup Podcast, reach out to them directly and just give them that little recommendation. The growth and the, the impact that we're having is really a, a huge part of what gets us out of bed. We do tend to record this pretty early to do this every single week, so we'd really appreciate that. Otherwise, send us a tweet. Chris is at Chris Saad. I'm at Y Bernstein. Let us know your thoughts about this episode and suggest topics for the next episode. Thanks very much, Chris. As always, it's been a complete pleasure. Absolutely, man. Thanks. Catch you in the next one.